All right. Good morning. I'm going to read the scripture this morning. All right. The first passage is uh, from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it goes like this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land, this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And the second passage is from Luke. Chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of God. The days are coming when God's glory will appear, appear out of the midst of our pain, and we will sing a new song. The promise of this season of the gospel is that God's glory is appearing in our midst, that 
that the buckets and the bowls, though empty now, will be full of God's Spirit, refreshing our souls, giving us direction for the course of life. But there is a journey we must go on, and that journey is a journey that, no matter how hard we try, will be a journey that includes pain. When I finished college, I wasn't convinced what I wanted to do with my life, what I thought God was calling me to do. I, uh, lots of people said I should go to seminary, I should go into ministry. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what they were thinking when, when they said that, but, but they did. But there are other voices in my life and, and my own sort of, the way I was sort of steering in my own head was that, that law school made a lot of sense too, that, that becoming a lawyer and, and you know, spending my life you know, putting bad people in jail or keeping bad people out of jail, I, whichever one paid better. Um, and, I, and I really couldn't decide. And so uh, uh, Debbie married me anyway, uh, and we spent two years dirt poor in Topeka, Kansas, in voluntary service, uh, trying to figure it out. I worked in a church and hung out near a law school. You know, it was a, that was the reason we went to Topeka, because if it didn't work out, this whole ministry thing, we wouldn't have to move again to go to law school. could go right there to the great Washburn University School of Law in Topeka, Kansas. And uh, a couple of years of that, and we decided, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see if this call of God to ministry has any juice in it. And we loaded up all of our worldly possessions, and there were a lot of books even back then. And we moved from, from Topeka, Kansas, this wonderful little Midwestern city where where, you know, the enchiladas weren't really all that greasy. Um, and, and, you know, it was compact, and, and there was history there, and we, and we drove across the country through, through the mountains, up I-80, across the Donner Pass, and down into California to go to seminary in Fresno. And as we drove into California, I, I began to see this different kind of tree. These Q-tips stuck in the ground. And it was, it was hot. I mean, we got down from the mountains into Sacramento and it was, it was blistering hot. Not, not like a Midwestern heat where you know, where you know the humidity is going to build up and there's going to be a thunderstorm and and, and God's going to wash the heat away and you're going to live in the cool of the afterwards of that storm. No, this was, a, this was a heat that had settled in a valley and was stuck there. And on that last day of the journey from into Fresno, 
late at night, I kept wondering, what have I done? What am I, what was I thinking? Why would I uproot this woman that I love from her family and move clear across the country and step into this graduate school experience full of bizarre languages and strange theology. And why would I do this? And, and especially, why would I live in a place with trees that looked like that? Not like trees like God made, you know? <laughs> Big oak trees, you know? And, and seasons, four of them. What I learned in Fresno, there were also four seasons. There was hot, hotter, hottest, and foggy. Do I get an amen for that? <laughs> and, and I realized in those early days that to answer God's call wasn't about pain avoidance. We don't answer the call of God in order to get out of our pain. That in fact, answering the call of God often is a painful thing. That, that to to hear God's voice, even, even dimly, through a thick skull like mine, to even hear God's voice dimly and respond to it meant that you would enter into seasons of life that were not easy, that were not risk avoidance, that were in fact painful. Our two scripture readings today tell us that story. Abram heard God's call as a refugee. He was, he was the, the son of a man who had left the great city of the ancient Near East, Ur of the Chaldeans, and had migrated to Haran, a little border town, a dusty little border town at the top of the Fertile Crescent. And there, the family settled halfway on their journey. They hadn't made it as far as they hoped to. We don't know why. The money ran out. The energy ran out. The, the, you know, maybe, maybe Heron had a job offer that was better than... We don't know. But there they were halfway on their goal. And they stayed. And Abram spent his life, the first half of his adult years, wondering, is this really what God has called me to? Is this, <coughs> excuse me, is this what it's all about? I, I'm, I'm simply going to live in this dusty little border place the rest of my life. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram and says, your journey isn't over yet. Go to the land that I will show you. And so Abram becomes an immigrant again and leaves Haran at the top of the Fertile Crescent and goes to what we know today as the land of Israel, the land of Palestine. 
And you would think, okay, so that's a really good part of the biblical story. What, what it means is Abram went there and he found God. And all was well, and everything lived happily ever after. <coughs> yeah, not so much. First thing that happens, he lands in the middle of a famine. <laughs> Wrong time to end up in, in a town as a new immigrant. And so they go on to Egypt. And there, everybody takes a shining to uh, Abram's young wife, Sarah. She's kind of a hottie. And, and you know, maybe it's good for Abram to kind of share. And Abram falls prey to this temptation. And you're my hero. Thank you very much. And Abram falls prey to this temptation. And, and gives him gives Sarah over and the voice of God tells him you've made a mistake and they hightail it out of town tail between his legs only to then fall into family disputes civil war you know this this migrating thing to this new land that you're going to show me God this this hasn't really worked out all that well and it's at that point Genesis 15 comes along. And the word of Yahweh comes to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I'm your very great reward. And Abram must have been thinking, did I drink too much tonight? Did I hear that right? Don't be afraid. I've lived in a constant state of fear since I left Haran. I've lived in fear that I'd be murdered for my wife, that I'd be murdered because of the land that I'm grazing on, that I'd be murdered in a civil war. All kinds of bad stuff has happened since I listened to God's call. And now God's saying, don't be afraid. I'll be your shield. Yeah, right. So Abram decides, all right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this whole vision thing to the test. And he says to God, so you, you drug me halfway across the ancient world, and I have no heir. Now, am I supposed to just hand everything over when I die to Eleazar of Damascus, the, my hired help? Is, is that your great plan for me, God? And God's voice says, go out and look at the night sky. Now, the problem with this passage, of course, is that as Southern Californians, when we go out and look at the night sky, we see the stars, dozens of them. <laughs> if, if we're lucky, we see dozens of them. Abram had the Milky Way at his disposal. The unpolluted night sky radiated with God's grace and hope. And God said, this will be your family. You will have a family as vast as the stars in the sky. You will have a family without end. Your, 
your progeny will continue throughout history, Abram. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And it was in that moment that Abram had to say, do I believe this or don't I? Am I going to stake my life on a vision of the stars in the sky? Or not? And so he says yes to that vision. He says yes God, I believe that you will make my family a great family. And we read in the text that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That in that moment, Abram decided that the pain of all the false starts, the pain of the journey so far was worth it because of what lay ahead. But God has a sense of humor. He, he isn't just willing to take us at our word, although he does. He, he reminds Abram of his immigrant status. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. With, with the promise of family also comes the promise of land. And Abram says, yeah, uh, that's really worked out really well for me so far. I've had to go off to Egypt because of a famine. I've come back. We're bickering over who controls what wells. There's been a civil war. And you're telling me I'm going to possess the land. Yeah, right. And so there is in this passage, this this curious, dramatic interlude. The Lord says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. And we're going, yuck, gross, what's this all about? This is not a vegan-friendly passage. What is, what is up here? Well, this is an old, really old, ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremony. You take that which you value, and you, you ruin it, you cut it in half, and you set it on two sides, and you make promises one to another. You make a treaty, and you both walk in between these, these valuable things that have been broken in order to say... My, the very essence of my wealth, everything that I own and have that's at my disposal is yours. And Abram and God reenact this covenant treaty ceremony together. Now, what's different about it is in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This, this, this covenant ceremony wasn't a quick and easy thing. It took a while. Abram sat there all day. He had to drive the, the, the birds away that were going to eat the Karen on the ground. 
and, and Abram must have been thinking at that point, you know, where, where exactly is God? He was supposed to, he, if Abram had had a wristwatch, he, he was supposed to show up a while ago. What's up? He was supposed to be here for this. Is he backing out? And as the sun went down, heavy with anxiety and worry, Abram falls asleep. It's exhausted mentally and spiritually. And that's when God spoke to him. When Abram was tired of waiting, God spoke. And he lays out this promise that is not an easy promise to hear. There, there will be bumps along the way, Abram. It's not going to all happen right here and right now. You're going to live a long and good life, but it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to end perfectly for you. Don't worry about that. Because I'm the Lord. And you're not. And it's at that point that they're able to walk together in covenant. The New Testament passage we looked at, we heard read, is Jesus dealing with a death threat. We don't think of Jesus dealing with threats. We, we think, well, gosh, he's Jesus. He probably should have just, you know, zapped him. <laughs> Take him out. Going to threaten the Son of God? You threatening me? You looking at me? You know, he, he, yeah, that's what we think Jesus ought to do. And, and the really ironic part of this passage, the death threat is from Herod, but it comes from, from, wait for it, the Pharisees. Okay, the, the, the group of people that Jesus gives the greatest amount of grief to, because he's most like them. Jesus is, is in essence, trained like a Pharisee. <coughs> he's, he's a man of the book. He, he believes in the Torah and in obeying the Torah. But the Pharisees don't like his interpretation of it, so they're constantly at war with each other. They're the ones who bring him the warning, the death threat. And it's like, well, who do I believe here? <laughs> do, I, do I believe the Pharisees that Herod wants me dead? Or, you know, are the Pharisees setting me up for something? Of course, the appropriate Sunday school answer at this point is, well, Jesus knows everything, so he knew what was going on. But just indulge me. Jesus had to have been thinking, what's going on here? And so he reaches into his rhetorical bag of tricks and pulls out one of the pithiest responses in the Gospels. Go tell that old fox Herod. Go tell that snarling beast, that runt of a snarling beast, Go tell him, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. I will keep doing the mission that God has called me to. I will keep doing what God has given me strength and grace to accomplish. And I will go to Jerusalem in my own time. And then he laments over Jerusalem. And we read these poignant words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often I've longed to gather you to myself. But your house is desolate. And not much is going to happen until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until, until that Palm Sunday event that we look towards during the season of Lent. These are two passages of Scripture that talk about broken hearts. Abram's heart is full of confusion and wonder at this stage in his life. And even though God comes and speaks to him and tells him you will have a family and makes a covenant treaty with him to seal the deal, it didn't happen the way it was supposed to. There was a long interlude. There was waiting for God to show up. Does God really mean it? Can I really depend on it? Can I really trust God at His Word? And Jesus, hearing that Herod's ready to put him to death from Pharisees, was likely wondering, God, where are you in all of this? Where are you in the midst of these machinations and these political infighting that's going on around me. God calls us to place. God calls us to be His people in a place, in a specific place and time. He calls us to be His people here and now. But the places God calls us to are places that will break our hearts and they threaten to wound our souls. But God's call still triumphs. God's call triumphs over the places we live in. Not always with great victories for the kingdom of God because of us, but because God's work is long and faithful. And we're a moment in that. And so God invites us, calls us, urges us, leads us to load up the van and move from beautiful downtown Topeka, Kansas to Fresno, California. And then God calls you not to go back to the Midwest where, by the way, God lives. <laughs> Just ask any Midwesterner but to stay in California, to live for 30 years, not just in L.A., but in inland Southern California. Closest place to Oklahoma you can live without actually being there, apparently. God calls us to a place and a time, to an encounter of His glory. He, he meets us with our buckets and our, and our dishes empty. And he says, go on this journey with me. And I will give you enough along the way. But hearing that call, seeing God's glory, that is not a pain-free exercise. There is a cost of discipleship, a cost 
to discipleship. Following Jesus isn't easy. Not for any one of us. Following Jesus is the hardest thing we do. Because it demands of us. Challenges us. And and yet at the same time it doesn't create a pain-free vacuum around us. The Gospel is not Vicodin. The Gospel challenges us to deal with the pain of the world by dealing with the pain of our own lives. God's promise, promise that God makes to Abram in the covenant ceremony, the promise that is implied by Jesus in his words to Herod. God's promise is a promise of the certainty of relationship. That God is with us. In the midst of whatever it is we're dealing with, God is there. In the midst of our pain, God is present. When the bank balances don't add up in our lives, when the relationships around us crumble, when we struggle to know what to do next, when our children make us bald because we pulled our hair out, God is present and loves us utterly and completely. And so this morning, some questions for us to think about. Where is God calling you to be? Where where does God want you? That's not an easy question to answer, nor an obvious one. Somebody had told me 35 years ago that God would want Debbie and I to spend our lives in Southern California. I would have run screaming for, well, there are no hills in Topeka, Kansas, but, but I would have run screaming somewhere because that was not the goal. But here we are in our 30th year in Southern California, in inland Southern California. Where is God calling you to be? What are the problems you face in going there? If you really want to go where God's calling you to go, what are, what are the challenges? What are the problems? What are the, what's the pain of that? Who and what are the foxes that threaten you? As you go, what's the lament that you have about answering God's call? And what's the promise that you need? The promise that came to me years ago was from a seminary professor named Waldo Hebert. Yeah, draw your own picture. <clears throat> but Waldo was a uh, a great pastor of a professor. And he gave me the verse, Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God does have a plan for your life. I know we say God loves you and 
Jeff has a wonderful plan for your life. I, but really, God has a so much better plan for your life. It's not pain-free. It's not risk-free. But it is a plan. And he gives us the gifts and the skills and the ability and the capacity to meet that calling. And he never withdraws that. He never takes that back. He never says, whoop, made a mistake with you, sorry. He says, you are part of an immeasurable family. Look up in the sky and see. I have covenanted to be your God and you will be my people. So that you can tell that old fox in your life that wants your destruction, that God is still at work in you and through you. One more thing was the founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce, who said it best. He said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And so this morning, I want to say to us that the places God calls us to, the places that God calls Madison Street Church to, are the places that break the heart of God. Families in crisis. Young people who have questions galore and know where to go for those answers. I, I look around here this morning and, and I know that in, in the work that you inhabit, the vocational choices you've made in your lives, God is at work in you in those. in the neighborhoods we live in. God is at work on those streets in you and through you. God is at work in His gifts and His calling are irrevocable. And so we, we come into those moments of pain, those moments when the buckets and the dishes of our lives are empty. And we say thanks be to God because He is still at work in us. Amen.